From Santa Barbara, California, the Timeless Voyager series, where the knowledge is timeless and you are the Voyager. Interviews with leading-edge authors and speakers, psychic phenomena and the unexplained, UFOs, extraterrestrial encounters, government cover-ups, alternative health care, new technologies. Fasten your cosmic seatbelts and join me, your host, Bruce Stephen Holmes, the Timeless Voyager. Hello, everyone. Bruce Stephen Holmes, Timeless Voyager. Today, I'm very excited to have our next guest, Andrew D. Bijago. Now, we're on through the magic of telephone, kind of old school. Andrew is the American lawyer, writer, public speaker, media personality, and for those of you who may not remember, he was a 2016 independent candidate for president of the United States. But he is best known for serving as a U.S. chrononaut in Project Pegasus during the advent of time travel and Project Mars throughout the beginnings of interdimensional travel. Welcome to the show. Andrew. Good to be with you, Bruce. I'm very charmed by your perfect pronunciation of my name. That was great. <laughs> okay. Um, let's. Could, would you mind if we started with something that that might be important for those people that are don't really know what a chrononaut is? Maybe you could just tell everyone what the what a chrononaut is. Well, chrononaut emerged as a term. I've popularized it, but I, I didn't originate it. It emerged in actually in a science fiction novel, I believe published in 1962. But all it is is essentially a time traveler, um, a time voyager, just as astronaut. But it, it is a legitimate term. So I've been popularizing it because we were not strictly time traveling. We were sometimes just viewing into the past or future with a device like the chronovisor, but also we could, of course, go to the past or future inside the hologram uh, of a chronovisor. Um, but I've tried to popularize chrononaut just to emphasize that uh, projects Pegasus and Mars were multidimensional. They were even looking into the nature of the human spirit and um, so it's sort of the simple definition would just be time traveler. But really, I think the best uh, definition would be sort of a, a time space explorer. Okay, so now that people have an idea, I think they now know what we're going to talk about. So where would you like to begin with this story? Well, I think that there's been a lot of discussion of chronovision. Um, for example, most recently, the guarding of the looking glass um, set of claims made by somebody who interviewed me 10 years ago or 13 years ago, and that's Frank Jacob of, of Canada. Um, the, the use of the phrase Project Looking Glass, I believe, was initiated by Carrie Cassidy of Project Camelot. There were a few times in Project Pegasus in which the chronovisors were described as a looking glass initially into the past. But I'm, I'm concerned that what chronovision was really doing has to some extent been submerged by a popularization that has taken a de minimis approach to chronovision and, and its significance. Hmm. When you say that, maybe you could be just a little bit more uh, specific, or maybe we could talk a little bit about the chronovisor for a moment. Right. Now, I entered 
um, the U.S. time-space program in 1967-68. But the chronovisors had their origin in the 1940s when two Vatican musicologists, both teaching and doing uh, applied scientific research at the Catholic University of Milan, fathers uh, Pellegrino Ernetti and his colleague, uh, Father uh, Agustino Gemelli, also known as Pierre Maria Gemelli, were studying the harmonic patterns of Gregorian chants. For example, to explore why Gregorian chants have spiritually edifying principles, how they, they tend to have a calming effect on the human spirit. So they were designing a specific microphone to split the individual voices of the Gregorian chants. And when they made a specific modification of this particular microphone, something that Father Gemelli's father had said to him in childhood, when he would refer to, to young Augustino Gemelli as my little zucchini, came through the microphone. And so to their astonishment, they realized they had discovered essentially a window to the past and something that would pick up past signals and magnify mm. them in the laboratory. So they contacted the leading physicists in the world, certainly the world's leading Italian physicist, Enrico Fermi, in the 1940s and advised uh, Fermi of this fact that if they did enough work, they were going to really be able to develop chronovision, the ability to see into the past. And they ultimately did that with Gemelli, with uh, Fermi's help, because uh, Fermi claimed that by 1952, they had a television-like screen that did not broadcast a television show of some kind or, or a televised real event but literally went back in the past and captured a past event and then broadcast it. Il Cranevisor, as they were saying in Italian. So by 1952, they claimed they had some evidence of a famous Latin poem that had hidden. You know, they, they always wondered what, what the rest of the So they actually made a discovery in time. Now, I came into the chronovisor in Project Pegasus in 1970, the, the fall of 1970. And by then, what had happened is the Vatican had passed the initial chronovisor technology on to the U.S. Navy because it had ambit over time travel. Initially, the U.S. Navy used to see over the physical horizon on the oceans, and so it was given ambit over the time horizon uh, during World War II. And they then passed the chronovisor technology as it existed with Ernetti, Gemelli, and Fermi on to DARPA, which originally, of course, was ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, but would become the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. DARPA mm. took the chronovisor technology and spun it off in Project Pegasus, giving it to Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey, about 15 mi minutes away from my home uh, in Morris Plains, New Jersey, in my birthplace in Morristown, New Jersey. And when I encountered the chronovisor, what they were doing was putting an electromagnetic signal through eight-sided bismuth crystals. That was an area of applied crystallography that my late father, Raymond Francis Boshago, had been working on in the 1950s and early 1960s. In fact, somebody would even find a patent that he was granted in 1962 in the prior arts section of a patent granted the legendary uh, Japanese-American physicist Leo Asaki in 1967. My dad's patent involved um, 
bismuth crystals and Asaki's patent involved eight-sided bismuth crystals, the very technology that my dad told me when I was on Project Pegasus was being used to generate the holography in which initially past events were being seen. So essentially, when I joined the program, the chronovisor was not just a, a TV-like screen. It was a cube of light. And when that cube of light was emitted outside of our bodies, it was a looking glass. But when we were on the stage of the chronovisor and the cube of light was brought around us, we experienced going to that time and place. So essentially, people need to understand that we're talking about both a 3D imagery and then uh, a super, let's say, 3D imagery in that you are actually embedded in it while it was happening. Is that correct? Yeah, the chronovisor was not just a looking glass. And I don't know of any existence of a project looking glass in the American Defense Department. Mm -hmm. The program was called Project Pegasus, and I've been talking about it for almost 20 years publicly on TV, on radio, and in public addresses all over the Western Hemisphere. Um, it was sending us to places. We were actually time traveling in this cube of light that was the the later elaboration of that TV-like screen that that uh, Fermi helped Ernie Gemelli develop from that specialized microphone involving bismuth crystals. Hmm. So... <laughs> I'm I'm listening and I'm thinking to myself, where did uh, where did you go? Or how about a few examples of where you went or what you did? Well, when we they were they were essentially um, having we children. Um, yeah, you know what? I think I think I'm going to interrupt. I think we need to explain to people who was actually on this particular project with you. Maybe not their names, but. Maybe a little bit more about the project itself. Would that be appropriate? Well, we have, you know, they were involving children for various reasons, but I was part of what I was told was 140 American school children. Let me just say that there were a number of different reasons for the use of children. So let me just cite two. In the case of the Tesla teleporters, that could carry somebody through a vortal tunnel in time series, which is an entire different set of technologies that the program was working with. Let's say they wanted to do that with the president or vice president or secretary of state and defense and their children. Obviously, the first children often would travel with the president, right? They wanted to know whether teleportation would be something acceptable to use on the first children of the country. And so they, they got stable, bright, healthy children from, um, you know, intact church-going families, the kind of kids who would be the children of the president and these other executive branch officials. So we were recruited in an international or, you know, a national talent search. Um, and... Uh, the goal was to test the technology. We were, in a sense, experimentees. But in the case of the chronovisors, we were necessities because the sensitivity of the holograms that were being generated was such that they needed to use bright children. Their only other option would have been very tiny adults. And because we were trainees, to be the first generation of Americans to be accustomed to different types of time travel from early childhood, let's say in the way that uh, Philippe and Jean-Michel Cousteau were uh, accustomed to, to scuba, you know, traveling into the ocean via scuba gear from childhood. Um, we were, you know, going to be the first generation of American chrononauts accustomed to traveling in time space from early childhood. So in the case of the the all of the devices, we were we were you know experimentees. 
But in the case of the um, chronovisors, we were necessities because the hologram would collapse often if, if adults were used there. If they said something or coughed or sneezed or laughed, their footfall, the very size of their bodies as adults would cause the holograms and the chronovisors to collapse, to go on the blink like an early television image. So we were brought in to be used in the time travel inside the, the chronovisors, inside the holograms. And I went to many places in the past. Um, I remember one time they sent me to um, the Five Points neighborhood of New York City shortly after 1900. They sent me to a rural location in the Netherlands where I saw these huge uh, windmills in around the year 1800. Um, there were just a number of historical places they sent me. We, they sent us initially um, where the chronovisors were dis were um, set up at the general manufacturing uh, company facility in Convent Station, New Jersey, and very close to my my home in Morris Plains. Um, and we were in a Civil War battle in which the Union forces were retreating and urging us to retreat with them because they saw we were kids on the battlefield, right? But we could not have been injured because that was initially three-dimensional chronovision. In other words, we found ourselves in a Civil War battle somewhere. It couldn't have been New Jersey. In fact, I asked one of the women from DARPA, how could we have been in the Civil War battle? Um, because, you know, I read that there were no Civil War battles in New Jersey, despite all the Revolutionary War battles there, you know, the Battle of Trent and then so forth. Right, that, and that was think, that was a good question yeah, that you did. asked. That was a good question yeah. because because that would be one of yeah. those things that people would make a, a sticking point about. Yeah, yeah. She said, "We think that that event from the Civil War is now over this location in New, in New Jersey, which is really a measure of the fact that the multiverse not only exists; it was in fact named, I think, by the American psychologist Henry James in the eighteen uh, eighties. Uh, but those." alternate dimensions of reality actually move around. And so that Civil War battle, in terms of images, was over Convent Station, New Jersey. And <clears throat> so as the, the Confederate forces ran towards us, I actually jumped below a berm, and I saw them leaping over me, yelling the, the rebel yell, which was blood curdling. And some of them stopped and sort of asked each other, you know, should we bayonet this this kid? And they said, no, let him go. He's just wow. <laughs> uh, a child. But if they had tried to do so, the bayonets would have gone right through me. That was going to be my yeah. question. This, in other words, you were uh, you were viewed, but the uh, the matter, let's say, was not as firm as it is. Let's say here. Well, we were very well trained, and, and what they had told us, the gentlemen from, from DARPA that were training us, is that when we were there under uh, third-dimensional um, chronovision, in fact, it was Jack Pruitt who, who described this, we were going to be there as in their time, their environment, their time-space environment, the same way that ghosts are in our environment. We're going to be what he called a superluminal superimposition. That's when we were in three-dimensional chronovision. But if 15 minutes occurred, we would get stuck there. And as a result, harm could come to us, whether we're bitten by the dinosaurs that we were in the presence of or bayoneted by a Confederate soldier. If we got to fourth-dimensional chronovision, we were not only stuck in that time and place, but we could be injured by whatever the threats of, the, of that time and place were. So essentially, there's a time limit on you. Well, there was what a, was called a density effect if we were in for more than approximately right. 50 minutes. Well, a density effect or a time limit, I mean, basically the bottom line is 
uh, you start to be absorbed, let's say, by the the time. Let's say if you're... Well, if the, yeah, go ahead. If the hologram would be collapsed around us, everything would start sort of dropping to the ground and bleeding off, kind of almost like a a painting on a Parisian sidewalk being hit by rain hmm. and the image would start just bleeding out. And we were told if that happened, just to sit down on the ground and start counting backwards from a hundred. And then about, I don't know, 60 to 90 seconds, we would start seeing the being the bodies of the other kids who had gone um, via chronovision start popping into view hmm. first as black body emanations and then as themselves. Um, but if we were in, in for more than 15 minutes, we could be stuck there for days. In fact, in the uh, Five Points neighborhood of New York City around, I don't know, 1905, 1908, something like that, um, I was stuck there and was living in this filthy tenement in New York City. But now when we were in for that long, you know, more than 15 minutes and literally stuck there, what the program had to do was direct a portal into that area of time space the portal looked like a a soccer goal and um we had been trained up at the picatinny arsenal in new jersey by army soldiers who were pushing such a device into place they'd say look kids the portal and we had to run all out with the best speed we could achieve as as uh, initially um, third graders towards the portal when we did we found ourselves running through a tunnel the sand would get deeper and deeper and then we would see a metal dinosaur up on the left side of the tunnel and then we would find sunlight what what they had done is they had put this this portal or probe that they were capable of manipulating at the back of a just a dinosaur tunnel or ride in an abandoned New Jersey amusement park. I believe it was the amusement park Bertram's Island. And then we would always tap on the metal dinosaur because that indicated to us we were not only, you know, back in New Jersey in a place we were familiar with, that, that amusement park, um, but 1971 or whatever, the right time. So it, it was a fairly perilous defense project for kid, kids to be involved in yeah i mean were you were you scared you must have been scared you god there were times when i realized how dangerous what we were doing was but i've, I've often described how it was so advanced and the darpa people working with us were so talented my father um carl pruitt of the Pruitt family, he and his father had actually gone back in time to meet with Tesla. Um, there's actually a photograph of, of them. I don't have it, but it was seen by different writers um, and was shown to them by Jack Pruitt. I have met with Jack Pruitt a couple times, um, most recently in 2003 um, at the old Sweeney Auditorium in Santa Fe. Um, he's a real guy. <laughs> I worked with him on Pegasus and I met him years later, 30 years later in 2003. Um, so they were just, they were just brilliant Americans, excellent educators. They were great with working with kids and they told us everything we needed to know, but nothing more than that. So actually, rather than being scared a lot as a kid, I kind of compared how I felt like a kind of like a yo-yo at the end of the string. I, I was really excited every time we were doing these. In fact, many of the kids, started crying when the program told them that we were being kicked out of the program in 1972 and they would never talk to us again. If somebody asked us whether the program existed or, or they knew who we were, uh, they would say the program never existed and we, we never heard of them. We must be making up some story. And we had to just adjust to the fact that we would no longer be, for example, teleporting between New Jersey and New Mexico because we had become so, um, fond of doing that that we were yelling geronimo when we would jump through the uh, the armatures of the teleporter so um we actually 
began to view what we were doing as a form of play and adjusted to it as children. Well, that's probably why they used children in the first place. Adults probably would have been really hard to handle if, if, if at least that with their, all their background. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's true of why they stopped using adults. My father told me that because adults are, are, are sort of fixed in a conventional view of time space and our journey through it sort of elapsed time. Some of them were becoming insane. They were losing their sanity. Um, essentially freaking out by traveling in time. We were, in that sense, not only trainees to be familiar with time travel when we grew up, but I, I've invented the phrase sanies. Hmm. We would not lose our minds time traveling, but adults frequently would. Initially, uh, Navy enlisted personnel. <laughs> Now, uh, have you? I think you've mentioned this before, but um, have you ever had a chance to speak with? Well, I think you said you do speak to. I don't even remember. Do you speak with some of the other participants? Do you know where they are? Do you even know if there are any left? Yes, I know who they are. I mean, I'm 61. Many of the others are, are were exactly my age. But now the kids on Pegasus were born in the late 50s and early 60s. I was born in 61, and I'm 61 this year. Um, I know their names, and I've spoke to them relatively recently, like in 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. But I just sort of decided not to focus my investigation on the children in the program because for example, of maybe the 10 or so kids I found from my immediate group in New Jersey, only two of them remembered teleporting. And I remembered jumping the, through the uh, armatures of the teleporter at Curtis Wright in Woodridge, New Jersey, you know, by name. I even remembered the black patent leather shoes of one of the girls reflecting as we jumped through the, the mortal tunnel on our way to Santa Fe, New Mexico. Well, I mean, that's so, just so that it's a it's a comment on on just awareness. I mean, some of them may not have been as aware as you. Yeah, I think it has something to do with the fact that when you involve kids in activities, and then they go through adolescence, that tends to cause certain the the most bizarre memories from childhood to drop out. I consulted with a brilliant um, social psychologist named Dr. Jean Maria Arrigo educated at UC San Diego. And she does a lot of consulting with the U.S. military and the intel community. And she described that one of the aspects of memory and learning is that, you know, everything is remembered, but very little is learned. And particularly when we have a singular experience of a very strange nature, it's exceptionally difficult to learn even though, um, you know, as Walter Penfield described, all those memories are up in engrams in our brains. So she said, be patient with these people, but remember that what you did in that program was so strange that most of them will not, did not learn what they were doing. They will remember ultimately. You'll probably have, you know, maybe a dozen sessions with them on the phone. And they'll go, oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, but they didn't necessarily learn that their childhood involved time travel for the U.S. Defense Department. But I, I indeed it did. So I have their names just as I've recorded virtually all of the adults uh, that I uh, that I met in the program. Hmm. All right. Now, there's so much that we can do on this, but. I would like to, uh, with your permission, talk a little bit about the Mars pro project. Sure, sure. Project Mars was sort of a follow-on activity of Project Pegasus. I was brought into it in 1980, although I think it probably began around 1976 when the death of Howard Hughes was totally faked. Now, if there's any reluctance that anybody in your listening audience has for joining what I've called the truth movement, my own activity, and I've called it my truth campaign. Consider this. Anybody who's old enough to remember the 
widely reported death of Howard Robard Hughes, the legendary American aviator, in April of 1976 needs to know that the American people were lied to. He, in fact, died 25 years later in 2001. Remember the story of Hughes being fearful of germs and <laughs> spending all day watching Ice Station Zebra hmm. uh, while eating black walnut ice cream. That was a story for the, for the demise of Howard Hughes that was used to obscure a number of advanced devices that he had either invented or was working on for the U.S. military and intelligence community. Hmm. One of them, of course, has been reported that was the Glomar Explorer, that submersible that was going to lift a Soviet submarine from the floor of the Pacific Ocean. One reason for the faking of Hughes' decline and death in 1976 was the development by then, several years after Project Pegasus ended in 1972. And of course, I had met Howard Hughes in New Mexico, um, where he was a guest of honor at a lunch staged by Project Pegasus. And um, he would go on to tell his third wife, Eva McClellan, in Alabama, that he had, she thought he had said that he had just spent some time with these stargazers elsewhere in the country. But I think he actually said stargators, because the stargate, of course, was one of the devices that Project mm -hmm. Pegasus had developed. Right. So Hughes, um, by 1976, probably following on what Project Pegasus provided him, had developed a device called an aeronautical repositioning chamber. The particular one that I would be involved in uh, was located at 999 North Sepulveda in El Segundo, California. It was essentially the elevator inside that building. 999 North Sepulveda is right south of the Los Angeles International Airport. It was a couple miles north of Hughes Aircraft in El Segundo. And I would drive down from where I was going to college at UCLA and park my car. And then I would walk into that building and I would go up to the fifth floor and sign in. I would write my name, sign it, put my date of birth and my social security number and my UCLA student ID number, which was my my ID number for Project Mars, 700-414-879. And then I would go back into the elevator and I'd go up to the seventh floor and I'd go to my locker, pick up any clothing or food I wanted to take, a photo flash gun that I'd been provided to protect myself from and my colleagues from predators. Then I would go back into the elevator, not only technically known as an aeronautical repositioning chamber, but in the vernacular known as a jump room or space elevator. And I go up to the, to the eighth floor, which is the top of that building. And from there, the elevator will begin morphing from, from a box-like structure into a cylinder and then back into a, a box-like structure. And then after fi about five minutes, the far door would open up and we were on Mars. We were in the sub-basement of one of about seven or eight U.S. facilities on the Red Planet. So when I was sitting, or not sitting, but when I was standing there in the elevator before anybody would say anything, they would then say from a speaker up in the, the roof of the, of, the, of the space elevator, are you ready to go to Mars? And I was trained to look up at the top of the, the arc, the top of the elevator, and say, ready to go to Mars. And basically, when, when Mars was fairly farther away from Earth, and it's what two, almost two, or a little bit more than two-year regular orbit around the sun, it would take about 20 minutes to get to Mars. But then as Mars began drawing closer to Earth, it would take only like eight minutes. And so therefore we could go with other American uh, chrononauts to, uh, to the red planet. Now, when we got back to Earth, we would go down to the, to the third, fifth floor again. And Major Ed Dames, the legendary uh, 
remote viewing pioneer, had been our training officer for Mars. Um, he had t- taught a summer course in August and September of 1980 at College of the Siskiyous in Weed, California, in Northern California. And it had come down uh, to Los Angeles when we began actually going to Mars. He has denied his involvement, but numerous U.S. chronots who were part of Project Mars have stated the truth that Ed was our instructor. I don't know why he has denied being our training officer, because he actually had a significant role in both Project Pegasus and Project Mars. Um, At that time, he was a scientific and technical intelligence officer for the U.S. Army. Um, And that, in fact, has even been taken away from his from his uh, website on the internet. But that's that's been a common practice, actually, since I began speaking out publicly. For example, in 1972, as Project Pegasus was ending, Ralph M. Parsons, the founder and president CEO of my dad's engineering company, the Ralph M. Parsons Company, which then was competing with Bechtel, corporation to be the leading process engineering company in the world. You know, so, so 1972, Ralph M. Parsons bought the largest private yacht in the world from Adnan Khashoggi, the uh, Iranian mm-hmm. arms merchant, and uh, renamed it Pegasus II. Hmm. Even Parsons had never owned anything called Pegasus I. I think he probably did that because Project Pegasus, Pegasus as it was called in the program, often um, had made Ralph M. Parsons a billionaire, um, and then of course allowed him to contribute work to Howard Hughes that would then get the first generation of American Mars explorers on the Red Planet. Um, so there's been a number of clues that have been out there, right there in the public realm that have now been concealed since I began speaking out publicly. So during this time that you're speaking about, Howard Hughes was legally dead, but he was operating. Is, am I correct in this? Yes, I met Hughes okay. on the fourth floor of 999 um, North uh, Sepulveda in El Segundo, a building that, of course, is still there. but. Uh, hmm. Because I had saved the life of a colleague who was a friend of Mr. Hughes. That was Bernard Mendez. Actually, I had been trained with Bernie Mendez, also known as Benny Mendez, uh, at College of the Siskiyous. And I was often on the surface with with Bernie. One time when I was just walking from um, around a set of hills or mountains, and we could see a particular jump room facility that we called the Corkscrew, I was walking behind Bernie Mendez. And probably because of oxygen deprivation, he just collapsed right in front of me. So I carried about a mile on my shoulder. You know, I was about 20 years old. Bernie was about 30. I was, what, 180. Bernie was like 160. But I said, I'm either going to, you know, bring this colleague of mine into the jump room. He might be eaten out here by a predator. When Howard Hughes found out about that, a friend of his who had actually found Hughes for President Nixon when, when Hughes was missing. Howard Hughes, one of my proudest memories, Howard Robert Hughes asked to meet me. And I was all of like 20 years old. I, I walked into his office and he said, is this Andy? Are, are you Andy? And he could not have been nicer. And that was sort of the uh, bipolar nature of Hughes. He was either extremely gracious and friendly or he, he was irascible. He was chewing somebody out for some reason. And I've compared notes with a biographer of Hughes, Major General Mark Music, who's become a good friend. And Major General Music is certain that I worked with Hughes because I was able to come up with specific information about Howard Hughes, um, how he had lost height during that airplane crash he had Mm. in Beverly Hills, California, and other aspects of Hughes' um, personality and behavior. Also the fact that Hughes had some kind of innate ability or some device that he was hiding on his person 
where he could literally disappear. I went in to talk to Mr. Hughes and he took me into this alcove next to his desk and just disappeared. Hmm. I looked around at Mr. Hughes. Um, that has also been reported by one of Hughes' children to Major General Music. So I'm just referencing Hughes and the validation of my experience with Hughes through a major general in the U.S. Air Force. This isn't just somebody on the blogosphere making uh, imaginative claims. This is an American Air Force officer who has studied Hughes' life and has affirmed in writing that he is certain that I worked with Hughes. Um, and that makes sense for why they had faked Hughes' death because of the Glomar Explorer, because of the aeronautical repositioning chambers, probably other devices. Hughes was involved in a lot. We, we have Howard Hughes, among others, to thank for winning the Cold War against the former Soviet Union. Hmm. My dad, in fact, is, another, is, is, is somebody we can credit with protecting us from extraterrestrials. In 1952, my dad was working at um, Okanite, in Paramus, New Jersey, and an Air Force officer came to his desk and said, are you Raymond F. Bashago? And he said, yes, I am. And he said, on Monday, you are to report to Curtis Wright in Woodridge, New Jersey, but I cannot tell you why. My dad got there the next week and was in a program where each different engineer had to have a different colored badge and those with different colored badges couldn't even eat lunch together. That's how compartmentalized that program was. And there at Curtis Wright by 1955, my dad designed the metal alloy by which a space plane called the Ramjet was built. The Ramjet was a supersonic jet that would suck air in and push it out the back at a high rate of speed. That jet was designed to chase extraterrestrials away from our planet following that famous um, July 1952 overflight of our nation's capital, an event that was depicted on the front pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post. You know, when, when friends tell me about what they, some lights in the sky that they've just witnessed on a show like Paranormal Caught on Camera, I say, wait a minute, this has been a 70-year cover-up. My dad was a young man. I wasn't even born yet when he designed the metal alloy so that the ramjet wouldn't melt from friction with particles of, of, of oxygen or, uh, you know, in our atmosphere or particles of space dust outside our atmosphere when it chased ET craft through our atmosphere and out into space. This has been a 70-year cover-up. You know, that's why I've done my part, Bruce, to encourage disclosure. I even ran for president, and one of the um, first planks in my celebrated platform, 100 proposals, was for transparency on, on the ET question. You know, before we go there, let me just ask you a couple other questions. Um, is the... Um, Okay, are all of these programs closed down or are programs on Mars, for example, still ongoing, but maybe under different names? Or do you even know? Well, I don't know because I haven't worked for the government since 1984. And certainly since I became a whistleblower against the instructions to me by the George W. Bush White House, that if I didn't stop investigating, writing about, and talking about my project experiences, they couldn't guarantee my survival. <laughs> so certainly from 2004 forward, when I did come forward publicly, I clearly have no capacity to communicate with anybody mm -hmm. working for the US military or intel community or defense department, what have you, or even the space force that President Trump founded during his term in office. But, um, I had worked for it, and I was very closely involved with with Project Pegasus and its follow-on activity, Project Mars. Now, do I know whether Project Mars has continued? I do know from the claims of other government officials, specifically um, the Israeli general who came forward in, what was that, uh, 
was December 9th of 2020, there was an Israeli general that came forward and talked about the U.S. and ET presence on the Red Planet. So, yes, we we have a statement from an Israeli general um, from just a few years ago that there is still an American presence on the Red Planet. How does this stuff? I, I I I don't want to go too far away, and I I, you know, forgive me if I, I'm jumping around, but there's not a lot of time, and I'm trying to get a lot of things in here. But um, what is your belief or or information on Alternative Three, which was supposedly about a U.S. base on Mars? Or, or not maybe a U.S. base, but a base on Mars back in the, uh, I think it was the mid, mid-60s. mid It was based on the actual travel to the Red Planet by American astronauts, which took place in um, 1964. It was produced by East Anglia Television as a work of science fiction, and it was so realistic that people confused it with science fact. But then again, science fiction was created as a genre of literature during World War II to be able to point to things that the major countries of the world were developing, you know, America, Britain, mm. France, and so forth, and say, oh, they're just talking about something they saw on that on that fictional television show or movie or that, that science fiction book that they read. But uh, that was the case for Alternative 3. It was science fiction, but it was so well done, uh, it was uh, confused with science fact. But we, we, we have to remember that um, Arthur C. Clarke and, and Robert A. Heinlein, the famous uh, science fiction writers, they had desks next to each other at British intelligence during the war. And they were two of the major architects of propaganda, including propaganda based on alleged scientific experiences or claims um, made on, in, within the ambit of, of science fiction. Okay, so that, you know, uh, Arthur C. Clarke wrote a book about chronovision. I think it was called Chronosphere or something like that. So they've been dropping, while developing these advanced technologies, the technology of the future, by, for example, exploiting the discoveries of a brilliant American uh, physicist and inventor like Nikola Tesla. They've been confusing the people of the world and the governments of other countries that, oh, we don't have that. That's just come out in science fiction. No, they have a lot. They have what was described to me in Project Pegasus is, is you know, you children have to remember that you're, you're having exposed to you literally technologies that the the general public will view as probably 200 years in the future and that's kind of where we're at the breakaway civilization that richard dolan has talked about already exists look at the fact that you know i first went to mars in 1980 16 years after america started going there via rocket but i went there entering an elevator in el segundo california which makes a lot more sense actually i you know, I'm just saying, I mean, it is pretty dangerous to take a a firecracker up out of the, the gravity and, and moving throughout space or whatever that is when you can get into an elevator. Well, when I was in Project Pegasus as, as, as a child, uh, we went to the year 2045 via Stargate. And when I was there, they showed me how in 2045, which bear in mind is what, 22 years away? You could go into a building in a certain city, let's say Los Angeles, and come out in another elevator in another city, like New York City. Okay, that's how advanced things were in the year 2045 in this country, at least on the timeline that I visited. I've often thought that, well, I better popularize this information and I think in a sense, I was trained as a communications officer. Um, certainly my, the course of my life has supported that premise because we're going to have to adjust to these kinds of experiences because they're going to be available. 
available to us in the future. They, they, they've been technically available, I mean, potentially available for 50 years. I was in Project Pegasus from age six to 10, and I'm now 61. So it's been a 50-year cover-up of the fact that the U.S. government developed, not theorizes, they still have the world's leading physicists like Michio Kaku, Ronald Mallet, the late Stephen Hawking, um, David Deutsch of Oxford, um, in indicating what, how time travel will be achieved when it's discovered. No, I did it. I did it 50 years ago when I was a small child. I'm now elderly. Right. Well, I've, I've always said that if time travel exists, Okay, that's just the start of the premise here. Then it always exists, doesn't it? I mean, it can't just exist now. For example, if you say that it will exist in uh, 2035, then when, when it happens, and if they come back and look at 2023, that means that it exists in 2023. Right. Yes, Project Pegasus proved not only the multiverse, yeah. I can give you an example of that that I was involved in, but the time-space continuum. So it's not a concept, it's a reality. Everything that has existed, exists presently, and will exist is in the quantum hologram, in the time-space continuum. That's why, for example, when they've gone forward in time, They've been able to identify future presence and vice presence and then brief them in the past, in the present, but which is now the past and was <laughs> was the present of the past from the perspective of those terms in office when they were doing briefings. So, for example, I was at luncheons <clears throat> in uh, in New Mexico with both President Bush's when. George H.W. Bush was probably about, what, 47 years old, around 1970, and W. was like 24. In fact, George George W. got in front of my uh, face. I was a third or fourth grader. He was like just out of college, and he said to me, Andy, have you heard? My dad and I are going to be president. In other words, we have been briefing hmm. future presidents and vice presidents. I also met uh, Vice President Cheney. He was like all of 29 years old at the time. In the context of my service in Project Pegasus, they were they knew that they didn't want to alter future events based on prior knowledge of them because that's difficult to do. You have difficulty changing the, the past or the future by visiting them because you're in them when you do so. You can do collateral things like, let's say, buy a lottery ticket ahead of time that you know is going to win. But you can't, let's say, you can't kill somebody before they become president because you're afraid of them <laughs> having a terrible term as president because you know they're going to be president. So All those paradoxes are kind that, of, yeah, I, yeah, I always look at those paradoxes as intellectual um, stuff. So the answer, in fact, to the grandfather paradox involving time travel, well, let's say, say that the, the father paradox. Because, look, if your father is killed before you're conceived, you can't exist. So you can't go back in time to try to kill your father because he never becomes your father. He mm -hmm. becomes an individual who is born and dies before creating you, before procreating with your birth. Um, the same thing is true of what I call, you know, retro and proto causation of trying to change the past or future by time traveling to it. You can't. Hmm. Okay. So that's, that's a, a, an error of logic that science fiction has helped create. So, but at the same time, you can engage in contingency planning in collateral planning and strategy based on your knowledge, let's say of future events. And we know they've been engaging in that because I literally met Presidents Bush 41, Bush 43, Clinton, and Obama literally decades before they became president of our country. Hmm. And 
quite frankly, I want everybody to know they were really pretty much nice guys. Um, you know, I, I interacted with them because they had just been briefed on their presences. In the case of President Obama, even while he was still using his original uh, Indonesian name, Barry Sotoro, he was regarded as a pretty nice and a pretty smart guy by the people in the program. And he was one of our Mars chronomats. In other words, your 44th president elected to never tell you that he was essentially the first American astronaut or chronomat to reach the White House. I've been told I might be the second, but I, I don't know. All right. Unfortunately, <laughs> we have kind of run out of time here, but maybe you have something that you'd like to wrap this up with, and then maybe we could have you come back. There's a little hook. I want everybody in our country to accept my suggestion, adopt as our national anthem, get together by the young bloods. Come on, everybody now. Let's smile on your brother. Everybody get together. Try to love one another right now. Because look, we are in an hour of maximum danger as a country. The Chinese, for example, have wanted to take, to take our country for 40 years to get hold of our food supplies, the richness of our agricultural lands. They are running out of food, and like all people, they want to live. So they have considered militarily overtaking this country. But because of unprecedented factionalism and partisanship, and a kind of a paranoid style of politics that has only been enhanced by the internet. We are in an unprecedented period of division as one people, Euplerbus Unum, from many, one, that's the goal, not from one, many, but I don't know what that is in Latin, but that's where we're at. I'm upset about the degree of almost axiomatic hatred that was shown to President um, Obama by Republicans and to President Trump by Democrats. I did not vote for President Trump. I ran against him. He made mistakes. I think that it'll ultimately January 6th will be blamed on him. But when I studied that event, I saw that he was telling everybody not not to do the wrong thing, to do the right thing. I'm reminded of what General Colin Powell observed when he was Secretary of State. And that is that every American is angry at every other American. We're seeing these unprecedented school shootings and, and public uh, acts of uh, mass murder. Our country is sick. And in its sickness is a divisiveness that may cost us our country because we may lose our country to other powers. So what I want to see is people step back and reality test where we're at and recognize that our country has been diminished by the separation between all Americans. Let's at least play get together by the Youngbloods, well, that great song from the 60s that I know you as a, a brilliant musician and, and producer of music would remember Bruce. Oh yeah, because I've done it. I've sung that song. <laughs> yeah, it's great, right? I think it sends a much better message of how to become one out of many. And I think that we're not just doing that because it would be a neat thing. I think that's going to be necessary to save the country. Before we even get to a world of teleportation and chronovision, of course, we wouldn't want to introduce chronovision on a, on a mass scale because as I've often said, you know, you wouldn't want to have your, you know, your privacy violated through chronovision. I mean, theoretically, if chronovision was reduced, it was produced, you know, was reduced to practice on the internet, all of our sex lives could become the pornography of the future. And for all of us who would like to see uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, giving the Gettysburg Address, as I was sent to do on November 19th of 1863 in 1972. Sure, it'd be great to show school kids uh, 
Lincoln giving the Gettysburg Address. But chronovision allowed on a mass basis would also allow us to see Abraham Lincoln going to the bathroom, um, <laughs> right. making love to Mrs. Lincoln. Yeah. So uh, it just is not something we want to violate everybody's privacy with. In the case of teleportation, I think we should introduce it in real time. But if we introduce teleportation to the past or future, which was possible, I was doing it in Pegasus, because after we introduced just teleportation in real time, we then they, they found the way to cause us to arrive at the destination in what we call the past or future. If everybody had that ability, everybody and his brother would have bought Microsoft on the upon its initial public offering. And all the money in the US economy would have gone to Bill Gates. Pretty, <laughs> pretty frightening prospect. Um, so we cannot introduce time travel. Mass time travel by mass people and mass timelines would lead to mass chaos. Certainly economic disruption, economic misallocations uh, of of money the M1 money supply, um, and also a manipulation of people's personal lives. Who, If somebody could time travel to the future and see if they were divorced, who would marry? You see? So we don't want to give people total knowledge of what the future holds. It would lead to all kinds of privateering, disruption of natural life cycle events and so forth. If people failed at something, they would not try it. And maybe in the failing, we're still learning something on a on a on a transpersonal, you know, spiritual basis. I would say at 61 that I feel that I've learned as much from my failures as my successes. You know, and, and there's been a lot of them on both sides of, of that equation. So but but at the same time we want to modernize society with teleportation in real time, just real time transit via teleportation. Imagine going from, let's say, London, England to Sydney, Australia, not for 24 hours on a commercial airliner, but in several seconds via a Tesla teleporter. Well, I was getting between Woodbridge, New Jersey and Santa Fe, New Mexico by 1967-68 in several seconds that's a distance of 2005 miles that means if we introduced it you know kids in california could let's say uh, go to their um uh, go to a dinner party in paris and come back and sleep in their own beds who whose lives wouldn't be improved by virtually instantaneous travel. Well, I can think of all the hotel chains. <laughs> anyway, listen, um, we need to wrap it up, but i tell you what I'd like to do. Um, I would like very much to invite you to come back, and I hope that you will consider it. And I've really appreciated you being with us today, Andrew, and thank you for doing the show. You, you've got it, Bruce. I'd be happy to return, and as long as you want, I've, my life has been an open book. I've applied Mark Twain's principle that you should always tell the truth because therefore you don't have to remember anything. And I would challenge all of the alleged claimants in what has become the secret space program to apply the same principle. I have, and it's worked. I've never been rebutted because I have never had to remember what I've said. I've just been telling the truth on a moment-by-moment -moment basis in interview. And yet, I, I must say that I was treated completely unfairly by American television. Um, television is basically another branch of the U.S. government, sort of the fourth branch of government, and is basically a disinformational hmm. um, area of media. But on radio, on programs like yours, Bruce, and as I can see from today's, I've been treated most fairly, and I, I thank you for that. For the rest of you, thank you for listening to the Timeless Voyager series. And I hope that your own personal voyage through life towards the development of your highest potential is a joyous and successful one.
Quiero 